Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, and welcome back for Season 2, Episode 7 of Take the Last Bite, a show where we take Midwest nice, put it in a box, put that box in another box, ship it to ourselves, and when it arrives, we smash it with a hammer. Today's episode is a timely crossover with one of the Institute's other programs, our Queer Policy Series, which brings policymakers, leaders, and students together to examine policy needs at various levels that impact queer and trans communities. We've pulled the audio from our 2021 Queer Policy event and resurfaced it for today's show because it's just as relevant right now as it was a year ago. This panel discussion includes ESPN feature writer Katie Barnes, Olympic trials athlete and founder of transathlete.com Chris Mosier, and deputy director and LGBTQ program director at the Movement Advancement Project Naomi Goldberg to grapple with the necessary question of why are we talking about sports? Trans folks' participation in athletics and sports has been the latest frontier of anti-trans legislation and social commentary. Once upon a time, the big move was attempting to police what bathrooms or locker rooms trans folks could use. While that's still a blip on the radar and we frequently hear anti-trans comments about sharing bathrooms with trans people, it's lost its political value over the last five to 10 years. My personal opinion is that the family values conservative crowd learned pretty quickly that the general public would agree in principle that they didn't want to share bathrooms with trans people, but that the measures for restricting access would impede more than just trans people's privacy. In other words, once it was clear how hard, aka impossible, it would be to monitor every person who entered a bathroom, the attempts of legislating bathrooms lost a bit of steam. Fast forward to today, where a new bill about trans participation in sport is passed or introduced on a near weekly basis, a lot of the talking points are the same, but the intended outcomes are a little different. We're still hearing trans folks be demonized or regarded as sexual predators. We're still hearing false concerns that cis men will dress up as women to take advantage of trans-affirming policies. We're still hearing that there's an advantage to trans people accessing spaces for quote-unquote, the opposite gender. Basically, nothing has changed in how the political right views trans people. They've just modified which arena of life they'd like to try controlling at the moment. So the point of concern by our opposers has shifted, but the basis for which they oppose us is damn near the same. It's important that they don't make too many gains on this latest front because through their wins, they will learn what works and what sways their audience to approve policies and protocols that enact violence on queer and trans people. And for obvious reasons, we can't have that. So while a lot of us may think, I don't care about athletics or sports, well... Right now, our opposers care a whole lot about sports and are using it as fodder for advancing additional anti-trans maneuvers. And unfortunately, we're seeing the average person be much more inclined to agree with restrictions on participation in sports than perhaps they'd be when asked to flash their ID to get into a bathroom. So our opposers have found some traction with this one, and it's not going away anytime soon. So in a very brief nutshell, 
That's why we're talking about sports. And today's conversation really impresses that point as the panelists make tight connections between what is going on in the larger movement for trans liberation and what's taking place within the worlds of professional, collegiate, and K through 12 sports. With that, I hope you've brought your peanuts and Cracker Jacks for this episode of Take the Last Bite. Y'all, we cannot do this. We cannot be these stereotypical Midwesterners. Please eat the rest of this food. We just have these conversations every day with people. Like, this is exhausting. I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? I don't know who you are, but we're going to talk by the potatoes for five minutes. Because aesthetic is the only thing keeping my dysphoria at bay. Yeah, I'm broke all the time, but I look amazing. Definitely going to talk about Midwest nice. And if that's, if that's, um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. I'm Naomi Goldberg, chair of the Ford School Alumni Board and the deputy director of the LGBTQ program at the Movement Advancement Project. On behalf of my, Dean Michael Barr, the faculty and students of the Ford School, it's a great pleasure to welcome all of you to this Policy Talk event with Katie Barnes and Chris Mosier. Thank you to our co-sponsor for today's policy talk, the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. The Institute works with talented student leaders from across the region to host the Midwest Bisexual, Lesbian, Gay, Transgender, Asexual College Conference, the largest conference hosted by and for LGBTQIA plus college students. Katie and Chris are here to talk to me today about transgender policy issues particularly why sports have become such a focal point for discussions about transgender people and their ability to fully participate in life. For context, despite a landmark US Supreme Court case last year recognizing that anti-trans discrimination at work is a form of illegal sex discrimination, this past state legislative cycle saw a record number of anti-trans bills proposed and passed. In particular, anti-trans legislation this year focused on two key areas, the ability of trans youth to access best practice medical care, and the ability of trans youth to play sports, bans on which passed in eight states this year alone. I'm excited to dive into these topics with two outstanding panelists, Katie Barnes and Chris Mosier. Katie Barnes is a feature writer for ESPN, covering culture, LGBTQ issues, women's basketball, collegiate softball, and women's combat sports. Since joining ESPN, Katie has written on a variety of topics, such as transgender athletes, racial justice, and Hollywood stunt doubles. Their articles on high school transgender athletes have earned them two GLAAD award nominations. Our other panelist, Chris Mosier, is an athlete, coach, and founder of transathlete.com. He has achieved a slew of firsts. The first transgender athlete to compete in the Olympic trials in the gender in which they identify, the first openly trans man to make a men's US national team. He was instrumental in getting the International Olympic Committee policy on trans athletes changed and was the first trans athlete to compete in a world championship race under the new rules. Chris has also written and advocated for change in policies from the high school level to national governing bodies and professional leagues. He has become one of the leading grassroots organizers against the current wave of anti-trans legislation across the US and I've enjoyed working with Chris in my own work. A couple quick notes about our format. Um, We're going to have some time at the end of our event today for audience questions. Um, We've received a few in advance, but you can submit your questions in the live chat on YouTube or tweet your questions to the hashtag policy talks. 
with that, welcome Katie and Chris, and thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So I thought we could just start by talking about, you know, what is going on with all of these states taking up um, anti-trans bills, particularly around sports? Do you see this as a coordinated effort? Who's behind it? And why is this happening? Chris, I'll let you take it first. Okay, I'll kick it off. Um, yeah, so, you know, this is absolutely a coordinated effort. Um, this is not something that is new. We've seen the anti-trans sports bills for the last two years, but the, actually the first one that I'm aware of came up in 2015. And so that was in pushback to South Dakota State High School Athletic Association, creating a trans-inclusive policy for high school student athletes. And when that bill did not get traction, we saw a shift to bathroom bills. And I think you know, many people are familiar with HB2 in North Carolina in 2016 as a bathroom bill. Um, and by bathroom bill, I mean bills intending to ban trans people from using the restroom in the gender which they identify. And you know, when that also didn't take hold, we've seen this swing back to trans people and trying to police trans people's bodies now through sports. I think this is a coordinated effort in terms of, and this is something that's been tested um, so we know that people feel very passionately about sports, whether they're athletes or not. <laughs> they have an opinion about where people should participate in sports. And so this was just a, um, you know, for lack of a better term, a wedge issue that politicians found resonates with, uh, with their constituents and that people feel very passionately about. We've seen copy and paste versions of these bills. Um, so the text is largely the same distributed to conservative and right-leaning lawmakers across the country, and just in hopes that someone will grab and take hold of it and introduce it, despite there being actually no problem with trans people participating in sports at any level of play anywhere across the country. And so we have organizations that are well-known anti-trans hate groups, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, the Heritage Foundation, as well as international groups like um, Fair Play for Women from the UK and their US counterparts, Save Women's Sports. You know, all of these organizations working behind the scenes to try to prevent trans people from participating safely and openly in public life. Yeah, I just want to echo what Chris said. Um, it's definitely a coordinated effort. I think that's pretty clear. Um, in my reporting, around, um, you know, and we'll talk about Connecticut, I'm sure at some point, but around the lawsuit that was filed in Connecticut, um, it was very clear to me that the Alliance Defending Freedom um, is one of the major proponents of these bills um, and are known for, you know, arguing uh, anti-LGBTQ positions in front of the Supreme Court and just being um, on the forefront of those legal actions. Um, and, you know, they definitely consulted on Idaho uh, when they passed their bill um, and have been involved in the sort of some of the behind the scenes work in terms of developing mo what they would term uh, is model legislation around this issue um, and encouraging folks to sort of sample from that. So uh, whether it's explicitly tied to some of the bills or just more in a background consulting capacity, that's an organization that's very much involved. Katie, you mentioned Connecticut, but I'm wondering, you know, when we think about proponents of these bills, um, they seem to cite the same one or two examples as to why these bills are necessary. And I'm wondering both in your reporting and more broadly, what has been the experience of trans athletes in high schools and what impact have they had on their sports? So I think, you know, one thing that's important to note is 
that when we have this conversation about transgender athletes, including those who have been successful, and that's really why folks cite Connecticut, sometimes there'll be a, um, a citation of Alaska from like 2016, but Connecticut is really the one that folks cite. And it is because, yes, there were two transgender girls who competed um, throughout their high school careers. And yes, they did win some championships, um, you know, quite a few, if we're going to be honest, you know, about 15. And that's a lot of championships. But the Connecticut is one of, and I think Chris will have the exact number, it's fluctuated in the last couple of years, but um, Connecticut's one of about, I think, 17 or 18 states that has a similar policy that is inclusive of transgender athletes. And yet the only one of those states that's consistently brought up is Connecticut. And it is because there were two transgender athletes not just competing, but winning and being successful. Um, and frankly, they weren't even the only two trans kids that were competing in sports in Connecticut at that time. And so I think that's something that's really important to note as well, is that when we look at the broader sample size, it's very clear that there are many transgender athletes who have gone unnoticed because they are average competitors and sometimes even below average competitors. Yeah, I think that's really, sorry, um, really important to echo that, you know, the AP um, had an article in the past several months that said, in state after state after state, lawmakers fail to be able to cite any transgender student athletes participating in their states. And so just to echo that, you know, we've seen, you know, other states that aren't even competing in a regional championship with Connecticut cite those two athletes within their within their um, their bills and their rationale for why this needs to pass. And also it's important to note these athletes have graduated. <laughs> they have they are no longer high school student athletes uh, and they're not competing in college either. And so you know really um, the fact that lawmakers can't cite local examples, they can't state state can't cite state examples, nor can they cite anything more relevant or recent than two years ago, um, points to the fact that this is largely a solution in search of a problem. Yeah, thanks for that, Chris. I know here in Michigan, the Michigan High School Athletic Association director testified and said, we've handled this on a case-by-case -case basis. I can think there's probably been eight or 10 athletes in the last few years. I mean, she was really emphasizing exactly what you said, that you know this has not been something that you know we've really struggled with um, and that we should not have lawmakers getting involved in how we handle it. So Chris, thinking about your own experience as a trans athlete and someone who mentors trans and non-binary youth who play sports, like what is the impact of these bills that you've seen, both states that have proposed them and states where they've passed? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we can't understate the impact that just the introduction of these bills have on young people specifically, but all members of the trans community. I mean, I often say like, I'm a grown man and I have the tools to handle when people are talking negatively about me and um, you know, when, when people are discriminating against me, but I still feel impacted from hearing lawmakers and our elected officials um, say that people like me are not valid, that we're not worthy of the same experiences as our peers. And, you know, after a young person stands up and testifies and shares their truth and their experience in front of lawmakers, you know, to have those people turn around and misgender that child, you know, it's just heartbreaking to see. And I think that really resonates for the trans community of saying like, you know, it, it is invalidating to hear that people think that we don't belong and, and, and our elected officials, right? Because they, they're the ones with power. We know across the country that largely people support the trans community more and more, right? But we're not seeing that play out in the people with the people who are making policies. But I think what the very real impact that, ha that this has, whether it passes or not, 
is the impact that it has on cisgender people, so non-transgender people, and how they feel that they can then approach and talk about and interact with the trans community. And that's really what I've seen the, the greatest impact is that you know some people have connections to sports, some don't, but people are hearing you know what are what lawmakers are saying. They're seeing the articles that are coming out, the headlines, um, you know, the the op-eds that say that we are not worthy of the same experiences as our peers. And that has a very real impact on the way that cisgender people talk about, treat, interact, and uh, you know, think of the trans community. And so that's the biggest thing that I've seen. You know, I've seen parents have contacted me saying that they're looking to actively move their family from states that have introduced this legislation because they have trans kids and they're worried about what it's going to be like for them because we know that sports is the entry point for a lot of these politicians. You know, we've seen these bills be packaged sports bills with those healthcare bills that you, that you mentioned, with bills that would prevent trans people from having IDs that match who they are. And that has a, a you know, a significant impact on how we can live our daily lives. So I think parents are, are nervous and concerned. Young people are nervous and concerned. And, you know, just the introduction of these bills has had a really negative impact on our community. So, you know, thinking about sort of the increased visibility of trans and non-binary people, um, particularly in sport, I'm thinking about Lucia Clarendon in the WNBA, um, Laurel Hubbard in the Olympics just announced a couple of days ago. You know, Katie, what positives have you seen as these athletes participate, not just for themselves, but for their teams and their leagues? Um, and where do you see the challenges that remain? So I think one of the biggest positives is just how meaningful it is for youth to see um, athletes like Leja and Laurel be successful and compete. And, you know, there's also Quinn uh, who competes for the Canada women's national soccer team, uh, who's also non-binary. Um, and I think like that part of it is really tremendous. You know, I've written about Leja and one of the things um, that I was really struck by uh, was, you know, a quote from someone who was in Indiana when Leja was playing there and noted how important, Important and impactful it was for them as a young person to see Leja not just as a professional athlete and be successful, but then like go on and be a parent. And just like how impactful it was to see someone who, you know, identified similarly to them, you know, be in their 30s. And that that type of visibility is something that um, I think, you know, cisgender folks may take a little bit for granted. Like you have like possibility models there who can sort of role model what, you know, a life into adulthood looks like. And that feels um, something that's kind of disconnected for a lot of transgender youth. And so I think that's like the biggest positive impact that is there. Just showing that, yeah, you can compete in sports and be successful at the highest level available and also be a happy, healthy transgender adult. I think that's very important. As far as the challenges, I mean, I think we're going to see it coming out of Tokyo. If Laurel Hubbard is competitive for a medal, it's going to be an absolute, um, it's just a very difficult conversation. And I don't know that um, folks are really prepared for that, to be honest. Um, and so, you know, that's going to be a real challenge, you know, for most of well, I mean, you know, Laurel is a weightlifter from New Zealand. And so for much of her competitive career, um, she has been outside of like the mainstream U.S. media. We don't really pay attention to powerlifting um, in the way that perhaps some other nations do. It's not really one of our mainstream sports. Uh, but at this particular moment, in this particular climate, um, 
you know, if she is competitive, I think we're going to really have a real reckoning with what that means um, and how we cover that. And so I think that's the biggest challenge that is upcoming. And then I think it's just, you know, worth noting that yes, visibility, very important, um, but it is not safety and it's not security. And in some ways being a visible trans athlete um, actually can exacerbate the already growing tensions around this topic uh, for many, many people. It gives folks, um, you know, something to latch onto. Um, and I think we saw that with the athletes in Connecticut in terms of Andrea Yearwood and Terry Miller. The fact that, you know, they were public, they were out and they were successful um, has given folks a lot of ammunition to criticize that success. And I think for um, elite athletes, uh, they're certainly going to feel that as well. Yeah, just to you know, put an asterisk on that, I think it, it really is uh, important to note that we're talking mostly about transgender women in this case, right? Um, my being out in public as a white trans man has not been controversial. Uh, my participation with men has largely not been met with uh, discrimination or, or harassment at the same level as a high school student athlete who's trying to participate with girls. And so, you know, that is an important call out and also, you know, the, the racial component as well. Like I, I have white privilege, I'm a white man. And, you know, my experience has been very, very different than uh, Andrea and Terry. And we've seen that our uh, black and brown and indigenous transgender and non-binary athletes are scrutinized at a, at a much more significant level than our white trans athletes. And so that's just uh, two important you know, notes to put on what Katie just said. Great. Well, I feel like you're both leading us directly where I'd like to go, which is kind of two simultaneous conversations. One around transgender women and girls and the sort of supposed you know, competitive advantage over cis women, potentially because of testosterone and the role of testosterone. And then I'd also love to talk more about the issue you just raised, Chris, around the broader kind of trend of policing and testing the bodies of athletes, particularly Black and Brown um, women, um, and thinking about, you know, both non-binary, transgender, and intersex athletes. So why don't we start with the kind of testosterone piece? Cause I think we, we started there, um, particularly with Katie kind of keying up, like what would it mean if a trans woman does excel um, at the Olympics? So, you know, what do we know about testosterone? What do you think its role is in competition? And, and how do we navigate this um, both in, I would say kind of high school sports, but also when we get up to kind of more competitive sports. So I don't know who would like to start with that question. I'll, I'll, I'll kick us off. <laughs> um, this is a, an interesting topic and I'm glad that we're talking about it because I think a lot of people do want to talk about it. And I think a lot of people are hesitant to talk about it, um, but you need to talk about it with nuance, right? It needs to be actually really discussed. And this is not something that we could talk about in a tweet, in a, you know, in a headline. And, and it needs a little more, um, a little more depth to actually understand. Every single human body has testosterone as part of healthy functioning. And so that's the first important call out. And I think it's really interesting that there is this arbitrary number that designates, you know, where uh, a person is no longer assumed to be a woman. And so, you know, that in itself is problematic. There's a long history of the testing of women's bodies you know, relating to your next question. Um, I am certainly not a testosterone denier. Uh, you know, I, I, I took, I take testosterone as a trans man, but I think it is important to say, like, I didn't hulk out, right? Like, I, like, like it didn't, it didn't change me that significantly. Um, so it's important to say testosterone is not the sole factor in athletic performance, first and foremost, right? 
Um, if the science was clear on this, we wouldn't be having this discussion. And that's the other important point is that what we've seen, and particularly from anti-trans advocates and the people who are pushing these bills at the high school level, are often using adults and cisgender elite athletes to pull data from and then apply it to a population that it actually doesn't apply to. So when we have these, these studies that are being used um, and the data that's being pulled, oftentimes they're first not comparing the same levels of testosterone. So testosterone taken from saliva would be different levels than taken from blood. We know that every single person's testosterone can fluctuate throughout the day. There are studies that actually say if the coach does good job or like give somebody a compliment that that produces a spike in one's testosterone. So there's a lot of um, cherry picking of data that, that happens with the studies that we've seen. And no, there aren't studies that are actually um, good studies to look at, to rely on, that actually study transgender people in sports. And so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is to assume that anyone with a higher level of testosterone will automatically be bigger, faster, stronger, or a better athlete is just problematic. It's sexist. It's wrong. Um, I know a lot of cisgender men who <laughs> are horrible athletes. <laughs> and I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of sexism, a lot of stereotyping that happens in, uh, in this conversation. What this has actually done is it's weaponized uh, testosterone against young people in high school. And so, you know, taking the, the data from the most elite of the elite of the Olympians and then trying to apply it to trans kids in the high school setting is deeply problematic and it's wrong, right? Like Olympic level, um, uh, Olympic level rules and policies should not be applied to young people who simply want to play sports with their friends. Um, I'll leave it right there so Katie can add on <laughs> other important information, but um, you know, I think the, the stereotyping that's happened and the myths, the myths and misconceptions that have been perpetuated by both lawmakers and by journalists who are very, very responsible for the misinformation that has been that has been put out there. Not you, Katie, <laughs> but, but <laughs> thank you for that. Also, um, you know, I think that that's that's been largely the problem. Oh, I got it. I got it. <laughs> It's fine. Um, I do want to echo much of what Chris said in terms of, you know, when we are talking, like we're having this conversation that's really about um, culture kind of wrapped in science and then wrapped again in rhetoric. So when we look at culturally, like what we're really talking about is that there's this fundamental assumption that anyone who's assigned male at birth is a better athlete than anyone assigned female at birth. And, uh, you know, that's just patently false, right? It doesn't mean that, you know, the like elite runners in the women's category um, in the 100 meter at the Olympics are going to run the exact same time as the elite runners in the men's 100 meter. We know that that is not true, but it also doesn't mean that Joe Schmo, who is a below average athlete who's assigned male at birth is going to be able to run faster than Allison Felix. Like that's not true, right? And so we're then having you know, that conversation on all of those assumptions and sort of placing it onto kids. And really we're having multiple conversations about multiple different situations when it comes to athletics and our willingness to apply scrutiny to athletes, right? Like I think Chris really hit it on the head when he said that, you know, what's okay, like at an elite level from a rules perspective, from a scrutiny perspective is not something that we should be talking about when we're 
um, that's not a standard that should be just put on like a 12 year old. And ultimately, like that is what we're talking about here with a lot of these bills. You know, I'm of the opinion that I think there is a lot of conversation that can be had around, you know, what sensible policy would look like. And, you know, reasonable minds can disagree on the finer points of those things. However, like we also need to remember that we're not talking about, you know, elite level athletes going to the Olympics. We're talking about literally a nine-year-old who wants to play soccer with her friends. Um, and that's something that's really, really important. And I think then just to dovetail on the actual science part of it is to highlight really how unsettled the science is and how imperfect many of these comparisons are. So like, for example, we don't have really good scientific data that exists on high school transgender athletes competing and the effects of hormone replacement therapy on their athletic performance. That does not exist. What instead is happening and what is being argued about is we have studies on transgender women competing in, not even competing, performing athletic tasks that have taken hormone replacement therapy far after puberty. And then we're talking about applying those results to policy that then affects kids who are going through endogenous puberty um, or have soon finished it or are in the middle of that process. And so we simply don't have a lot of scientific data to, I think, really satisfy the appetite um, that folks have around answering some of these scientific questions. And that's just a reality in terms of acknowledging just how much in flux we are when we're talking about understanding the, not just like the effects of testosterone, specifically like physiologically, like we know what testosterone does to a body, generally speaking. But what we don't have great data on is the actual effects of testosterone in its various forms at various ages, at various points on athletic performance. Um, and I think, you know, really what it comes down to is not even, you know, I think Chris said, you know, he's not a testosterone denier, um, but acknowledging that like there is a certain level of advantage in sports that we have deemed to be acceptable. So we have accepted if you are, um, you know, perfectly genetically and physiologically engineered to be the best swimmer ever. We've accepted that that is an advantage that you're allowed to have. We've accepted that if your family has money to pay for private coaching, that that is an okay advantage to have. We've accepted that if you are able to purchase a home in a neighborhood that has a well-resourced school, that that is an acceptable advantage to have. And yet when we're talking about transgender kids in the middle of just being who they are and who may or may not have an advantage for a window of time, and all of that is debated, I want to be very clear about that, that that is an advantage that is not accepted. And, uh, you know, I think that's just a little bit messier than folks probably want that to be. I feel like you both have led us perfectly into a policy discussion. Um, we're, you know, the policy school is hosting this um, and we, you know, we're at a school that also has a very prestigious athletic program. Um, I'm gonna say go blue. I'm getting very excited about upcoming seasons. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, what we have seen by way of policies for trans kids to participate in sport that work well. Um, Chris, maybe you could start us kind of walking through. I know you're, I, I look to you as the expert, honestly, and tracking these various policies. You know, what, what exists at the, at the kind of youth level? And then what do we see and how does that differ when we get to say the NCAA and then we get to kind of the other um, more professional areas of sport? So Chris, I'll let you start. 
Yeah, thank you. There's a, a huge patchwork of policies across the country. And I think that's important to know first and foremost is that at the high school level, uh, there is no federal you know, legislation or rules or policies that say where trans student athletes should participate. So it has in the past largely been left to state high school athletic associations to make those policies up until last year with Idaho HB 500 becoming the first law um, in the country to dictate where athletes should go. Um, so our most inclusive policies allow transgender student athletes to participate in sports with their friends in the gender with which they identify and to do so without restrictions. You know, um, Katie had mentioned this is a, a package of, uh, you know, wrapped in a pretty bow of rhetoric <laughs> on the outside, right? And so the rhetoric has largely driven um, how people are thinking about inclusive policies or creating policies to exclude student athletes as opposed to find ways to include them, to pull them in. And we should be very clear that the goal for high school student athletes and, and lower ages should absolutely be inclusion because we know all of the positive benefits that young people receive from playing sports. I would say, you know, all of the values that I love about myself as, a, as an adult human person in this world, I learned through playing youth sports, leadership, communication skills, goal setting, on and on and on. And I think that that's been widely documented. Also very important to say that in those states like Connecticut, like California, that actually have trans-inclusive policies that allow student athletes to participate without restriction, we've actually seen the number of cisgender girls increase in sports at a higher level than our national levels. So for states that have exclusive policies, policies that ban transgender student athletes, the, the participation of all girls in that state has actually been going down. And in those states that have inclusive policies, we've seen a rise in all student athletes participation. So there are a lot of benefits. Um, we have those inclusive policies. We have 16 states that allow student athletes to participate without restrictions. We have some states that don't have policies that actually do a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so you can see the problem with that of having one person make a decision of whether or not somebody should be allowed to participate without uh, real guidance or, or clear um, protocol of how that happens. And then we have states that actually require that a student athlete participate on their based on their original birth certificate or that uh, in a few rare cases, they actually have to have a surgery in order to participate in, in high school sports, which is just mind blowing. Um, you know, how this differs from, uh, from NCAA, so collegiate student athletes, there is a policy in place that is actually hormone based. And so the NCAA policy is based on testosterone. Uh, it has a one year wait, uh, wait time, but it does not have a hormone limit. So no levels that are being checked. Um, and that's where it differs from the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, so at the most elite level. And then any national governing body that follows the International Olympic Committee policy, those are using a hormone-based um, policy, but also have a, a limit on the amount of testosterone that could be tested in an athlete system. Um, very, very important to call out that these policies are uh, specifically intended to um, to govern transgender girls and transgender women. And so, you know, the International Olympic policy says that trans men can participate without restriction, essentially. Um, and a lot of the policies are not concerned about uh, transgender boys or transgender men, and they're written in a way that would limit uh, or prevent transgender girls from openly participating in girls' sports. I do want to add one clarification to um, transgender men uh, competing without restriction. 
um, as it applies to the men's category. If and when transgender men do decide to medically transition, including hormone replacement therapy and taking testosterone, they must compete in the men's category. But if that is not a part of their transition journey, they're free to compete in whatever category they wish. Um, so that's, I think, important in terms of how we're talking about like the protection of like the integrity of the women's category specifically. Yeah, great call out. Thank you for that. And I think it's also important to note that as we're talking, you know, we're very much talking about uh, trans trans people making a very binary transition, right? So there are, you know, sports is a very binary institution. We have a men's category and a women's category, and athletes have to choose between one of the two of those. And so we're, you know, these policies are structured for people making a very binary transition. But more and more, we're seeing non-binary identifying folks who want to participate in sports. And we are now starting to see policies that are actually writing about non-binary athletes and where they participate. I think that there's a lot of work that can happen on, on thinking through the structure of sports and making sure that non-binary people can participate in a, in a meaningful way. Um, but I think that's the next, that's the, the next iteration of these policies. Um, currently, there's only one state in the country that has a high school policy that mentions non-binary athletes. What state? Washington, Oregon, Oregon, Washington. Sorry, it was not I'll, get, I'll get back to you. <laughs> I was generally just curious. <laughs> I'll get back to you. It's one of those two. I can't remember. Somewhere, <laughs> Northwest, one of those. Um, yeah, so in thinking about, I had something to say and now I just started laughing, I don't remember. So Naomi, you go right, you go right No, back. that's great. You know, I was, I was wondering, you know, Chris, I think you brought up this like, really tight concern around women's sports and the sort of sanctity of women's sports and protecting women. And I'm wondering, like, you know, Katie in particular, like having covered women's sports for a long time, like, what do you see as the threats to inclusion and participation in women's sports? Um, you know, if this isn't it, what are they or is this it? And and how do we navigate that? And what, what are the concerns you have? And then, you know, Chris, certainly I would welcome your perspective um, as well. Yeah, I would argue I, I don't really think this is uh, of top of mind uh, for women's sports in terms of, um, you know, wanting like a thriving uh, women's sports culture in this in, in the world, I suppose. Um, really, you know, the main issues around women's sports and, you know, the integrity, I suppose, of the category, as it were, um, is about funding, you know, like it's about funding and investment and, um, you know, folks being interested enough in women's sports like well not even interested enough but just having the ability to participate in women's sports from a consumer perspective from a participatory athlete perspective etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, those things i think are really you know the actual uh, finer points of you know when it comes to what a thriving women's sports culture would look like um, you know i think about the WNBA a lot as a professional sports league that has um you know, really strive to be progressive around a lot of these topics and is having ongoing conversations about these things. And like, it's a growing league that's getting a little bit more investment. And here we go. And, you know, one of the most prominent members of their leadership team from a player's perspective is non-binary. And like, that's really wonderful. Um, and so I just think that when we talk about women's sports, like, you know, and the Title IX issues in particular at the collegiate level and the high school level affecting women's sports, it has honestly little to nothing to do with the fact that 
there are some athletes who are competing who are trans and sometimes those athletes win. Like it's about, you know, our universities in compliance with title nine when it comes to sports. And the answer, at least from my reporting by and large is a resounding no. And so like that really, I think is the issue that should, that we should be focusing on. And then like, if we come to a place where we actually do think, you know what, this is a bit of an issue then we can have that discussion. But I think, you know, just harken back to what Chris said earlier, you know, when folks really fail to cite local examples, when the only examples that folks readily have continues to be the exact same one over and over and over again, and that those athletes aren't even competing in high school anymore, they've graduated and they're not competing in college. I think it's really important to say that they're not competing in college. And the athletes that filed suit in Connecticut are at division one schools on scholarship. And so like those things are really important, I think, to call out because it's, it's not to undermine anyone's concern, but I think it is to say, okay, here are the facts. Like let's deal with all of them in all of their nuance and messiness and come to a place um, of discernment, I suppose. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think really what women's sports needs is just more funding and a real commitment for equity um, from the folks who are claiming that they want to protect it. It's been so frustrating as a as a fan of women's sports to see people weaponize and and leverage um, cis women against trans women in in this space um, because you know we know that that this is not a threat this is not this is not on the top ten list of threats to women's sports. Um, there's a great paper called Chasing Equity by the Women's Sports Foundation which highlights ten greatest threats to women's sports right now, 10 things that really need attention. And it's the things that Katie just mentioned. It's opportunities to, um, to funding and, and investment in, in coverage and in money. Uh, it's opportunities for athletes to go on to coaching positions, to have professional opportunities and Title IX compliance on and on. But there's no mention of transgender athletes in this report at all. And, and actually, the Women's Sports Foundation has been very clear about saying that their goal is all women, all sports, you know, all girls, all women, all sports. And, and very clear that, that trans women are women and belong in women's sports spaces. Um, the people who are on the inside, I think, really understand that. And it's been really upsetting to see these people who claim to be uh, trying to protect women and girls in sports, who then are also the same people who, right before this bill comes up, are policing women's bodies in terms of abortion or access to health care. Um, you know, I would question if any of these people introducing these bills have ever watched a game, <laughs> bought a ticket to a, a WNBA game or a soccer game, uh, have a jersey, you know, are, are positively tweeting messages about female athletes. Like, I, I'm just not seeing it. And so um, it's really been just uh, positioning. It, it's a tagline that sticks. You know, all of these things are media message. They are tested to see what resonates. And it's, none of it is, is rooted in any fact or real concern about uh, what will help or uh, save women's sports. So before we turn to questions, I, I sort of want to go a little more personal um, with both of you. So, you know, first, I think, Katie, like, how is your identity as a non-binary person affected? How you report both on these issues, but also more broadly, your, your reporting? And then, Chris, I have a question for you, but we'll let Katie go first. Oh, man. Um, I think... 
you know, as a non-binary person who grew up playing sports, like I played basketball, I'm from Indiana, like good Hoosier through and through. Um, and I love sports. I love women's sports in particular. And I just, you know, I think as I have thought about the way that I see myself and how that has changed and developed over time, um, I, I think it, it really informs my work in terms of, you know, wanting to report in a way that is hearing so many perspectives um, and is balancing all of those perspectives. Chris and I laugh about that sometimes um, in terms of, you know, being willing to pick up the phone and listen to folks with whom I don't particularly agree. And they know I don't agree with them. Um, and I think that's important in terms of holding myself accountable and being um, open and honest about where I sit on a lot of these topics and then reporting around that, you know, accordingly. Um, but, you know, it is deeply personal, you know, in a lot of ways. Like, it's hard to have some of these conversations um, about not just, you know, things I care about, but about a community of which I am a part. Um, and, uh, you know, that's something that I find to be deeply, deeply challenging sometimes. But I do think it's important. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to, I think, sports, you know, the thing that I love about sports is that, you know, even though I think you know, culturally we act like they've stayed the same forever, like, I like that, you know, we're having these really meaningful, deep, challenging conversations about why we've made the decisions we have around sports and what could they look like if they were different. Um, I don't know that I want them to be particularly different from a category perspective, but, you know, I think it's important that we're asking ourselves those questions. Like, is there a better way to do it than the way that we are doing it now? Um, and, uh, you know, what does it mean to have an inclusive sporting apparatus um, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I'm always excited to go out and try and answer that question. That's great. And I think just having read a lot of your coverage, Katie, I think it speaks to how important it is to have diverse representation and who is reporting on issues because um, it really does come through. So thank you for that. Um, Chris, sort of taking actually some of Katie's answer, you know, when you think about the advocacy that you do, the support that you provide and your own personal experience, where do you see people shifting perspective? Like what are the conversations that you have that you find people actually, you know, you hear what they say, maybe you have another conversation and they actually shift their perspective. What has been your experience with that both individually and as an advocate? Yeah, I think, um, you know, representation matters a lot. And we often say that, that it's important for people to see trans athletes uh, participating, to see us having a, a great sporting experience to see us being included and welcomed in different sports spaces. But I think, uh, you know, the biggest thing for me that I've seen recently is how people can shift their perspectives uh, when we are humanized, right? Like when, when so many of these stories are talking about myths and misconceptions about trans people, um, you know, using imagery that doesn't accurately reflect who trans people are. And it, you know, that can really, um, cause community to spiral out of control in terms of how they think about us and how they talk to us, as I mentioned in our opening answer. Um, one of the great things has been, uh, I'm the executive producer of a film called Changing the Game. It's now on Hulu and it follows three young transgender student athletes, as well as their families, their coaches throughout their competitions, and really just provides this real human look at these are kids who are trying to play sports with their friends and what they're going through in school and what they're going through with their families. And I think that that's a, a starting point for people to begin to understand where they got their early messages about the trans community. 
and how those are actually different and, and wrong based on the, the accuracy of the trans experience for young people and particularly people in sports. So it's been really cool to see people use that film as a sort of book club for people who don't read books. <laughs> you know, use that as a starting point for conversations to say like, there's somebody in that movie that every single person can relate to, whether it's the screaming coach who's being really nasty towards a, a young person, or you know the the grandma who misgenders uh, the trans kid at first, but is so loving and supportive, and you see them go through this evolution of support and, and doing anything for for this kid. And so you know that I think has been how people have been able to change their perspectives, both in my own personal experience of sharing my story with colleges, universities, companies uh, as a trans athlete, as well as uplifting those other stories because there's not just one way to be a trans person. There's not just one way to be a trans athlete. And so people need to understand we are as diverse as any other group of people. And it's important that all of these stories be heard so that people can really start to see us as people as opposed to uh, as a headline or as a threat. Great, well, thank you. Um, we're gonna turn to some audience questions now. So if folks do have questions, make sure to put them into um, the YouTube chat or um, on Twitter, hashtag policy talks. Our policy, yeah, policy talks. Um, and so, you know, kind of the first question, the first series of questions we got is really around supporting trans athletes. Um, and so, you know, one question was, you know, what are the kind of organizations or um, places that people should go if they want to be more supportive and, and help support both trans people and athletes at all levels of competition? So Chris, maybe you can start there because I know you're involved in a lot of different efforts around the country. Yeah, I'd say first and foremost, if you're looking for more education, more understanding about policies or about trans people in sports in general, please go to transathlete.com. Uh, it's a website that I track all of the policies across the country in, in high school sports as well as around the globe. Um, any organization that I'm aware of that has a policy is on there as well as terminology lists, uh, best practices that at, at this moment in time, better practices and model policies for folks. Um, so it's a great starting point to get the beginning uh, basics of education. And then um, also I would just encourage everybody to reach out to their local organizations. I mean, I think anybody could put, uh, pop a question into Google and find the national organizations that are touching this work in some fashion, some more genuinely than others, but um, the local organizations really need our support and <laughs> Katie laughing, uh, you know, really need our support. And so I think that reaching out to those local spaces where you can actually make an impact, uh, you know, find out what, what is needed in your community and what initiatives they have going on. And that differs, you know, based on people's area of, of the country that they live in. Um, but those are the spaces that actually need the most financial support and need the most amplification of their efforts and can always use volunteers in actually rolling up their sleeves and getting involved. Great. Unrelated, um, and this could be to both of you, um, you know, when we think about supporting trans athletes, um, this question was particularly from a college um, staff person, you know, what are the kind of supports that um, people should be thinking about for athletes, knowing that they're dealing with these added layers um, to being in the world, to being who they are, to being in a classroom and to, you know, playing sports? What are the supports that um, folks should think about putting into place? I'll let Chris take that one too. <laughs> you know, I think um, just like personal experience as a trans person, what I wanted most as a young person was just to be affirmed as the person that I know that I am. 
And so, you know, I can't, I can't overstate the importance of saying uh, people's appropriate names and their pronouns and allowing them access to the spaces that affirm their gender. And so that is really, really important. So any, you know, teacher, administrator, coach who has the opportunity to affirm a young person's identity, that support alone can make a world of difference. And we've actually seen statistics of if a young person has one person in their life or one space in their life, like sports, for example, that affirms their identity, they have a 25% reduced risk of uh, self-harm in a year. So I think that, you know, we know that the that the challenges that trans young people in particular face um, often lead to thoughts of self-harm. And so that is a really, really important statistic. Um, and, it, and it costs you literally nothing to, to use someone's appropriate name and pronouns. Um, beyond that, I think that there are opportunities to look at your policies, to look at your uh, your forms that you have, look at your systems in place within a school or within a sports league uh, to see what would that experience be like for a young trans person? And what are some of the barriers that they may encounter within your system to actually having access and being affirmed in that space? And then you can start to make some changes. Uh, we know that, that those sort of policy changes take a longer time and there has to be a lot more investment, but the benefits are so, um, so impactful for, you know, while it may only impact one person in your community, it can make a world of difference, like literally life and death you know, difference for that young person. So those are all really important uh, things that people can do. And, and beyond that, just personally, you know, education around language and terminology. Again, all of this is, is free, um, G-O-O, G-L-E, uh, lots of information out there, transathlete.com. Uh, get that starting point for using appropriate terminology and that is also very, very affirming for members of the trans and non-binary community. Great. Um, Katie, we received a question from the audience um, specifically around like, where do we get to have conversations about advocating for a world where trans women get to be exceptional and they do get to excel? Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, take us to three weeks from now. Um, when Laurel Hubbard perhaps has won or has medaled um, in the Olympics, like what would be the kind of coverage, the questions you would be asking, the way you would want to influence that conversation as a reporter? Oh, man. I think, you know, if if Laurel Hubbard, you know, medaled, I mean, well, first of all, I mean, there's so many questions I would like to ask Laurel. Um, but, you know, and I think it's important to note, right, that Laurel has specifically chosen to not really engage with any media at all, period, except around required media at like international events, such as the Olympics. And I think there's a real reason for that, in that a lot of times media members focus on wanting to know like intimate physical details about a trans person that are unnecessary. Um, want to know, you know, a trans person's name at birth, which is not just unnecessary, it's completely invasive, right? Like, you know, I think there are common mistakes and pitfalls that folks fall into, whether it is, you know, describing, you know, the size of a transgender woman competing in sports, et cetera, et cetera. And I think for me, when it comes to like that moment, I would just want to know what it meant to Laurel, who, you know, if she does medal, she will have done so 
after just suffering a gruesome injury a few years ago, after almost not qualifying for the Olympic Games. Like there's so many other storylines around Laurel Hubbard and her success that would be just as worthy of, of highlighting in addition to a historic moment, which yes, it would be historic. And so it is important to note that she is trans, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we have to sensationalize that moment from a media perspective in terms of just really focusing on these really like salacious things that just, I mean, it's just kind of grody. And frankly, if we were doing it to another person, like we would think it was gross. And I don't know why from a reporter perspective, we haven't gotten there with trans people yet. So that's like a place that I feel very comfortable saying, don't do that, please. Um, and, you know, focus instead on like on the storyline and what that story, you know, means and looks like. And it doesn't have to just be trans person wins X. And let's talk about all of the ways in which that is problematic. If she does win, it will be con or not even if she wins, if she medals, if she places in the top five, just by showing and competing, there will be controversy. And so that controversy is of note and should be reported around, but it doesn't have to be sensationalized in ways that are just like super gross. Grody, I think that, <laughs> super grody. Um, yeah, such a, such so many good points that just like, I don't know if you saw my making faces as you were saying that, but uh, my experience as being a transgender athlete and having the media cover me is that, I've been asked the most invasive questions that none of my competitors have been asked and that are completely irrelevant to my athletic performance. Um, and at the same time, I've also, in a, in a very different way from Laurel, tried to balance the fact that I feel very called to being public and to being out and to having people, people see me because I know what it would have meant to me as a young athlete to see someone like me today. And to see somebody competing at a high level, to being openly trans, to having an awesome life, to sharing not just the, the trauma forward story of being a trans person in this world, which is very, uh, very real narrative, but also experiencing and sharing trans joy and what it means to be an athlete and to celebrate my accomplishments and to, um, to be celebrated for my athletic performance and to what I bring to the team and what I contribute as a coach. And those are all storylines that have not been highlighted enough, in, I feel, in my story. And at the same time, I balance that as a person who absolutely wants to be an advocate and a role model and a possibility model for others. And so it's very important that in the headline, it does say transgender athlete, because I want people to see that. And then you know, in a moment like this, I, I hope that I have done enough work as an out trans person that the, those questions have been asked. And I know that you know, this, this isn't actually true, but my, my dream state would be that we've gotten this out of the way. People have made those errors in reporting on me that we wouldn't be in a position where we're only um, focusing on Laurel's transness, right? And not the fact that that injury just made me cringe when you said that, you know, what Laurel has overcome to get to this position and the exceptional uh, nature of being one of the athletes at the Olympics on the world stage, um, people often overlook the training that it goes into being a high level athlete. You know, like my success, Laurel's success is not because we are trans, it's because we've worked our asses off. And I think that's really important and overlooked. And that's the storyline that I would love to see reported on, uh, you know, for Laurel and for other transgender athletes as well. Great, thank you both. Um, so unless we'll see if there's any other audience questions in the meantime, I'm wondering, you know, just to sort of end on a fun note, you know, what is the upcoming Olympic competition that you're most excited to watch? Chris, you want to start us off? 
I'll tell you, I am so excited to watch the Paralympics this year, and I've been really, really happy with the um, with the US OPC, so US Olympic Committee and Paralympic Committee, um, pulling in Paralympics as a, as a larger part of the Olympic Games and the Olympic movement in the United States. And the fact that I just have a lot of friends who are over there, and I'm just very excited to personally see a triathlon in particular and paratriathlon, uh, but also just celebrate all of the athletes just as a as a competitor, I know what it takes to get there. Um, the Olympic trials was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Didn't make the team, so I'm rooting for everybody from the United States. But um, you know, I'm just really excited to set my alarm clock really, really early. I've been waking up at four and five this week to try to train myself to not be so tired. But I'm so looking forward to uh, women's soccer in particular. Gymnastics is always amazing. Every track and field event. I mean, how long do we have here? I'll just list all the Olympic events. <laughs> Katie, what are you all excited right. about? <laughs> yeah. I feel more on the spiritual level. Um, I actually like wake up early to write most most days. Like, so I'm already up. So I can't wait to get up at 4:30 in the morning. Although that's like that's really early. That's like if I'm really behind, that's when I wake up. So we're gonna make this work. Uh, so women's soccer, can't wait. Uh, also really thrilled about softball starting today. Uh, first time softball has been in the Olympics, uh, since, oh man, 2012, 20, 2008, a long time. It's been a long time. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, basketball, obvi, like women's basketball, women's sports, like really whatever I say a sport, just assume it's the women's competition, uh, track and field swimming. I love it all. Like, I can't wait. Thrilled. Well, great. Well, we look forward to your coverage, Katie, and I'll be paying attention to your Twitter, Chris, to see what, what you're thinking um, as the Olympics move forward. Um, I want to thank you both for what has just been a really awesome conversation, and I hope we get to do this again sometime soon. Um, and to our audience for posing such great and excellent questions, um, and just want to thank everyone for tuning in and stay tuned to the Ford School website and social media pages for more information about upcoming events at the Ford School. And have a great day, everybody. Take the Last Bite is made possible by the volunteer labor of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Our larger work is sustained by the contributions of grassroots donors. If you would like to support the life-saving work of empowering, connecting, and educating Midwest queer and trans communities, please consider setting up a monthly or one-time donation at sgbinstitute.org backslash giving or hitting that green donate button on our website's homepage. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, Nick, Danielle, and Michelle for all of your support with editing, promotion, transcripts, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>